We left off last time we were in the book of Hosea, and that is with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, a parable that Jesus told that we know very well, that a son sought the inheritance of his father. The problem was that his father wasn't dead, and yet, in a sense, he was asking for the father to be dead in order to get the inheritance. In other words, he was saying to the father, I would rather have your stuff than I would you. And so why don't you just go ahead and give it to me now? And the father does give to the son his portion of the inheritance. And as we know, the son spent it on reckless living and squandered the whole of his inheritance. And once everything was spent, it says that there was a famine in the land, and as a result, he worked for a pig farmer. You could imagine, as Jesus told this, the gasp of thinking of a young Jewish man working with pigs. Not only that type of animal that they were not to eat, but that they were not even to be around. It demonstrates how low he had fell. And it says that he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. In other words, he wanted the pig slop because he was so hungry. And it was in this lowliness that he thought, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish without a morsel of bread to eat. And so, you know, as he thinks through this, he decides to go back to his father, not as a son. He knows that he cannot be a son anymore. He has squandered that right, and as a result, he goes back wanting to be merely a servant. But you know the rest of this story. It says that the father, while he was long off, ran Not to rebuke him, not to condemn him, but to greet him, to hug him and to kiss him and to lavish his love upon him. To have him return, not as a servant, but as he was a son. And it says that there was much rejoicing in that home. And as I said a couple weeks ago, the story of the prodigal son is ultimately not about the prodigal son, is it? It's about the father. And oftentimes we miss the radical acts of the father because we're so focused on the radical sin of the son. And it's actually not the son who was prodigal. Yes, he was. He was wasteful. He was reckless. But we could even say that the father in many ways, was recklessly wasteful as well. Not only in giving his son the inheritance beforehand, but especially when he comes back, he kills the fattened calf. He puts the robe, the family robe, upon him, puts the signet ring back upon his fingers, which demonstrates that he, once again, is a son. He restores to this son the family assets. Once again, he's put back into the inheritance. Even though he spent all of his, he still gets a claim to that which remains. And what we see is there's much parallel between the 
prodigal son story and Hosea. That both stories go against that which we naturally think. We would naturally think that the father would want nothing to do with this son that had done this act to him. In tonight's passage, we see something similar. That Hosea goes to retrieve and receive back his wife. In fact, to purchase her, to buy her from the one that has her. And not only to buy her, but as it says, to love her once again. In some ways, we might think that this is almost beyond that which is believable. In fact, so much so that Calvin in his commentary writes, and yet it seems inconsistent with reason that the Lord should render his prophet contemptible after having brought on himself such a disgrace. And as a result, Calvin believes that this is a vision of the Lord given to Hosea, not an actually an account of what took place. And I would have to say that this is one of the rare instances where I have to disagree with Calvin. But there is no indications from this text that this is a vision. Chapter 3 seems to be written as a narrative passage, and I believe we should receive it as that, as that which actually took place, as historically accurate. And yes, Calvin is right. Hosea's actions were contemptible. He brought disgrace upon himself, no doubt, upon the family name. And yet, is it not in here that we see the true scandal of the gospel and God receiving sinners unto himself? That this redemption story that we read throughout the scriptures is the redemption story also of Hosea and his wife. We'll see this tonight in four points. Retrieve, redeem, restore, and return. First, retrieve. In chapter 2, we saw the intent of Gomer, that she had unfaithful affections and intentions. In verse 5 of chapter 2, she says, I will go after my lovers. And it says that she dresses the part. She adorns herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers. And she did so because she was seemingly trying to achieve something that she did not have. In fact, it quotes her as saying, she will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Seemingly that through the hands of these lovers, they are providing that which she thinks that she needs. And as we've seen throughout this book, all of this is a parallel of God's relationship with Israel. The people that Hosea is called to minister to in the same way that Israel has gone after other gods, other idols, specifically Baal. They have done just the same as what all the other nations have done. The nations that they are supposed to be separated from, that they are to be distinct from. They are the ones that are to model true and faithful relationship, a a marriage even with the one and only true God, and yet what have they done? They've done the exact opposite. They have ran after other gods. They have turned their 
back upon the one true God. In a sense, they have prostituted themselves. They have whored themselves with other lovers. And we've seen this again and again in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And as a result, as it says there in verse 13 of chapter 2, that they have gone after other lovers and forgotten me, declares the Lord. And this is not without consequences, as you can imagine. First of all, the, these relationships, these lovers, have not provided that which they thought or she thought they would. As we said, she went after these things because she sought provisions. And yet, in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, She did not know that it was I who gave the grain, the wine, the oil, and the silver and the gold. But these things were provided to her by Hosea. But again, Hosea is a picture of God. That it is God who provides all of these things. That they don't come from any other source. And not only do they not provide anything good, but they only provide that which is bad. As we come to chapter 3, we see God commanding Hosea to go and retrieve his wife. By some indications, this seemingly is not the first time because he says, go again. Go again and get your wife. Love a woman this is, who is loved by another man. And it's not just any other man. This man seems to be a captor. That Gomer finds herself in captivity, perhaps in slavery. I think we can understand this text to believe that she is now a slave as a result of this relationship that she has sought after. And entered into. This false love, this false provision has captured her and she is no longer free. She is in trouble. That which she entered into has captured her will and made her a prisoner of it. Well, we see the true picture and nature of sin, do we not? If you've ever met or known someone, perhaps yourself, has had a sinful addiction, be it pornography or drugs or alcohol. That which was once seen as a type of enjoyment that was entered into willingly becomes enslaving. And one that does is caught and captured, so much so that they seemingly cannot free themselves. They are like a fly in the web. The more they try to loosen themselves, the more it clings to them. And the reality is that is the truth of all sin. That is the nature of sin because it comes from the evil one, as John 10 says, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That destruction is the end game of sin, of our sin. That it would destroy us if God would allow it to be so. But just as God said to Hosea, go, he also said to another, go. And that is the command that he gave to his one and only son. Go because my people are enslaved in sin. 
And you alone can save them. You alone can free them. Just as Hosea went, so did the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, in every sense of the word, has retrieved us just as much as Hosea retrieved his wife, Gilmer. And second, then, we see this redeeming, this redemption that Hosea goes and, as it says in verse 2, bought her for 15 shekels of silver, a homer and half of barley. In other words, there was a cost. Some commentators have noted that the 15 shekels of silver was probably the going cost of a slave. Think about that for a moment, that Hosea had to buy his wife, had to buy her freedom, had to pay her ransom, something that she had gotten into, a problem that she had caused, a cost that she had incurred upon herself, and yet she had no way of paying it herself, no way of freeing her, no means of her own. No way of gaining her redemption. And so another had to come and do it for her. And that other is not just anyone. It's her own husband. The one that she had been unfaithful to and cheated on. Again, the parallel is so evident, is it not, that our sin comes at a cost, that our freedom is not free, that there is a purchase price, and yet we are not able to pay it, are we? Perhaps you remember the parable that Jesus tells of the unmerciful servants. It says that the servant owned the king 10,000 talents. Now we might read that, and that might just go right over our head, but... When Jesus said that, those during Jesus' day knew how much a talent really was. And that amount, 10,000 talents, would have been laughable. That there is no one that could have even tried to get themselves in that much debt. Because that would have been several lifetimes of wages in that day. But as is, it is impossible to get in that much financial debt. It is not impossible to be in such spiritual debt, is it? That every sin that we commit is against an infinite God, and therefore we owe an infinite debt to God. A wage that our life cannot atone, a debt that we cannot pay, a debt that we have willingly occurred. And the consequences of it are our own death and damnation. As Romans says, the wages of sin are truly death. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when on the command of his Father, he paid the price. A price was his own death, his own damnation. He took upon himself the infinite wrath of an infinite God for infinite sins committed against the infinite and almighty God. 10,000 talents would be absurd, but it pales in comparison 
to the debt of sin. Christ had to atone. And Christ didn't pay it with shekels. He didn't pay it with dollars. Didn't pay it with homers of barley. But he did so with his own blood. As First Peter 2 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Indeed, it was the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God, the blood of the only begotten son of God. It was God that was willing to give that which was most precious to him. And as a result, do we need to doubt its worth? Do we need to doubt that it is enough to pay for all of our sins? Do we need to doubt his intention or his love? Again, as Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, we have the fullness of our redemption. The cost has been paid. We are fully redeemed just as the price that was given to free Gomer was good enough to gain her freedom. So we know that the price that was given for the Lord Jesus Christ was more than adequate for our own freedom, for our own salvation, for our own redemption. Well, third, then we see this act of restoring. We see the redemption and the price paid, but we also see the restoration. Verse 3, as Hosea said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Seemingly, Hosea takes her back into his house. Speaks tenderly to her as he says in chapter 2, verse 14. And says, you must dwell with me. You must live faithfully. You must not be unfaithful anymore. You must not play the whore. You must not belong to any other man. Literally, any other friend. And it says, so will I also be to you. You should not be with another friend, but I will be a friend to you. And here we see, I think, the restoration of the marriage once again that Jose is saying that the, the past is done away with. All is forgiven. We shall live in this relationship, in this covenant once again. And the Lord does the same with us. He restores that covenant relationship, that marriage with us. Even though we have been sold into slavery, we have been brought and redeemed. And no longer do we remain as servants, but we are brought into the family of God. We are made individually the children of God, brought into the household of faith. And collectively, we are the bride of Christ. And that with any relationship, there are stipulations. So too in this 
relationship, in this covenant that we have with God. There are things that we need to be need to abide by and live faithfully to. Yes, all is forgiven, all sons are done away with, but we should not continue in sin, that grace should abound, Paul says. And we should not continue in our waywardness, seeking other lovers, as Hosea would say. But we are to deepen our relationship with the Lord. We are to be a disciple, a, a learner of His. And again, think about how amazing that is. What an amazing privilege it is for us to be in relationship with Almighty God, to be called His own, to be His, and for Him to be ours. We should never cease to be amazed by this. To live in gratitude. Both in the fear and the joy of our Lord. When we see this retrieving, we see this redeeming, we see the restoring. Lastly, we see the return. As chapter 1 and 2 ends, so does chapter 3. That we see a fullness, a restoration that is yet to come. In verse 4 and 5, it says that the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in that latter day. In other words, Hosea is saying that there's going to be a return. Not only a return to the Lord God, but a return to David as their king. Remember, Hosea is ministering to the northern kingdom, that kingdom that broke away from the line of David, the line of Judah. And we know from history that the northern kingdom never comes back under the rule and reign of the line of Judah. But that does not mean that they do not come under the rule and reign of the line of David. Because we know that there was one that came from the stump of Jesse, from the line of David, the one who would have an everlasting throne, the one that would never be destroyed or overthrown. And that promise, I think, here at the end of chapter 3 is that future restoration of the full consummation at the end of time, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hosea points to that, points those that would read and hear of his prophecy to that fuller and that greater day. And he would point us to it as well, that the Holy Spirit would have us to focus on that which is yet to come. That what the Lord Jesus Christ began when he came on his first descension into this world will be that which he fully restores to its fullness in his second coming. That he would be truly as he is, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he would bring about the fullness of our redemption. And in that day, his bride will be perfect. His bride will be made complete and spotless. 
His bride will no longer have a wayward eye. Will no longer have sinful and unfaithful desires for any other lovers. But the eye will only be upon the bridegroom, the faithful lamb of God, the warrior that rides upon the white horse. As he comes to tread upon iniquity and to claim that which is rightfully is. And on that day, he will enter into the true marriage, the true fullness of the covenants, that marriage that was begun at the creation of the world. And in that day, God will be our God, and we will be his people, and we will enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb and of his bride, dwelling together forever for all of eternity. Beloved, this is what it's all about, is it not? That we need to understand that that is the, the full picture of Scripture. That we have gone from death and darkness into life and to love and to living in this eternal kingdom forevermore. That that is the true hope of the believer as we talked about this morning. That is what we long and look forward to and even say, come quickly. Lord Jesus. And so with that thought upon our minds, I have us go back to that original question, that which this story to some degree seems almost unbelievable, and we would ask, why would any man do what Hosea does here for Gomer? How is it that he could go after being cheated upon being the one that has been the scorned lover, go and receive his wife and not only retrieve her but to redeem her to pay the price and to bring her back and to speak words of kindness and love and to say that all is forgiven and that we are to enter into even a greater relationship that we have ever had it's hard for us to think in that way to imagine we think this could never happen in any human relationship And as we think about that, we should think, you know what is even beyond that, that which is even farther for us to believe and for us to comprehend is why would the Almighty God, who surely does not need us, do this for us? Sinful creatures. Why is it that He would retrieve, that He would send His only Son for us and not only retrieve us, but redeem us with His very own blood? To restore that relation, to restore that covenant, that marriage. Why then again would he come again? Why would he return to bring us into that glory? It's hard for us to answer, is it not? The only answer that we can give is that he is a God of love. A God of mercy, a God of compassion just as God commanded Hosea to not just go but it says go again and love we begin to understand some of the only understanding that we can have of the motivation of why God would do what he did to understand that reckless love of God when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten 
son. Indeed, in this passage of Hosea 3, we see some of that so loved aspect of God's love for us. And we should exclaim with John, as he does in 1 John 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we shall be called children of God. And that is what we are. Beloved, this night we know that love, we have received that love, that love is very much an undeserved love, and that yet that love is a love that is in increasing measure given us to us day by day and will be for all of eternity. Indeed, what manner of love has God lavished upon us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we read a story like this, it is hard for us to comprehend. We might even say it's unfathomable. And yet, Lord, we have not even begun to plumb the depths of how unfathomable it is that you would love someone like us, that you would pour out your grace and mercy and your blood even to redeem and to save and to set us free. But Lord, we indeed have received that love. Indeed, you have lavished it upon us. And Lord, even that is only that which we know in part. But one day we shall know it in full. Until that day, O Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful to you. That we would not run after other lovers. That we would not be made captives again according to other sin and bondage. But that we would live in the freedom of the relationship that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be a witness of it. That we show that it is truly the hope that is within us. Lord, we pray that you would help us in all of these things. Until you would come and claim us fully and forever as your own. Lord, we pray for your spirit. For we pray this in Christ. Amen.